0: I know about dancing and there's a time and place to do it. Tick, tech, tech Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast.
1: Hey, before we get going for real, we've got an ad, kind of.
0: Are changing the atmosphere. This
2: is my generation's nuclear-free moment. I want you
3: to act as if the house was on fire.
4: Solving the climate crisis is going to take big ideas, and we don't have time to muck around. So Stuff has launched the One Hot Minute video series, where we give each guest just 60 seconds to share their big idea about climate change. But at the same time, we wanted to dig a bit deeper which is why we're also launching this, the One Hot Minute podcast. I'm Eloise Gibson, Stuff's climate change editor. In each episode of this new podcast, I'm going to be talking to a climate change change maker about the big ideas from their One Hot Minute video. Both the video series and the podcast series are launching soon on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz, and you'll be able to subscribe to the podcast on all the usual platforms. We'll see you soon.
1: Anyway, haere mai, welcome, this is Tick Tick Stuff's 2020 election podcast for Thursday the 20th of
4: August. I'm Adam Dunning. And I'm Eugene Bingham, Ten ana koutou We bring in the news, some of the more unusual things about this general election, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular topic.
2: There are 58 days to the election.
4: So, it's been a little bit of back to the future for the MPs, the ones outside of Auckland's lockdown anyway. They all had to sort of head back to Parliament and Remember we talked about those kind of of end-of-year school speeches, the valedictory statements and adjournment debate, where everyone basically said their goodbyes. And I was thinking there must have been quite a few awkward moments around the halls of Parliament. You know, think of those MPs who delivered their zingers that they laid down, thinking they'd never have to see anyone for at least a few months, or maybe never. And then suddenly, here they are, face-to-face across the House again in Parliament.
1: Yeah, good point. Like James Shaw from the Greens saying he'd always enjoyed speaking after Winston Peters in the House and how he was going to miss it.
4: Ooh, burn. Speaking of which, what about good old US President Donald Trump? Hey, He got us a good one. He brought up New Zealand and our COVID response at a press conference the other day. He said, and I'm going to read this word for word, so sometimes it doesn't quite make sense. They beat it. They beat. It was like front page. They beat it because they wanted to show me something. The problem is, big surge in New Zealand, you know? It's terrible. We don't want that. Hmm. So he said this,
1: that the US doesn't want what New Zealand's got on a day when we had nine new cases in our big surge. On the same day in the US, 42,000 new cases. So yeah, big surge from us, all right? The biggest, the greatest, great surge. Anyway, later in the show, Andrea Vance and Luke Melpas catch up with ACT leader David Seymour in the third of our party political leader interviews. But first, Eugene... What's been happening?
4: Health Minister Chris Hipkins has ruled out Auckland Tamaki Makaurau needing to move to alert level 4. Hallelujah! He said the alert level 3 restrictions were doing the job in helping public health authorities get on top of the so-called Auckland cluster. And so far at least, there had been no spread from the unrelated Ridges Hotel case. That's the one that involves the maintenance worker, remember. Cabinet is due to review the settings for Auckland's and the whole country's alert levels tomorrow, Friday. There were six new cases yesterday, five connected to the cluster and one a recent overseas arrival.
1: National leader Judith Collins has accused the government of messing things up when it comes to border management, and in this case she's talking about the Auckland border. By the way, it's kind of quaint to think of Auckland having a border, right? Anyway, Collins says the government should have been planning for regional lockdowns instead. She says we've ended up in ridiculous situations where people who live slightly outside the super-city's border are struggling to get in and out of work in Monaco or Auckland. She described it as a total cluster, by which I think she means the kind of cluster people used to talk about before
4: coronavirus came along. The government's called in a couple of heavy hitters, former prime ministerial advisor Heather Simpson and health and business czar Sir Brian Roach. They're basically there to supercharge the border, by which I mean the one between New Zealand and the rest of the world here, and bolster the managed isolation and quarantine testing system. That comes, you'll remember, after all the revelations this week about the testing of staff not being up to the level promised. In another development, 500 more defence personnel are being brought in to replace private security staff at managed isolation and border facilities. Okay, Adam, time for us to head off and leave things to Andrea Vance and Luke Malpass. day, you two. Hello, Yotta. how are you? Good, thank you. So you both sat down with David Seymour on Monday, I think it was, wasn't it? Andrea, you were saying you seemed a bit out of sorts.
2: Yeah, I always look forward to talking to David because, you know, he's an incredibly smart guy and and he always gives you an insight that you perhaps haven't heard from anywhere else. And he's got this wickedly self deprecating sense of humour. So it's it's always a pleasure. And, you know, look, the conversation was was really interesting, but he did seem a little bit down in the dumps and, and he didn't really want to embrace the opportunity to talk about Acts success. Luke had a theory that perhaps he doesn't want to, to jinx that huh. Acts polling really well at the moment and, and could potentially bring more MPs into Parliament. So he, it felt like also perhaps he'd been talking to some constituents, businesses that were really in trouble in Auckland, and it seemed to be really weighing on him. And he did say to us at the end that he had a, he had a terrible headache. So all of those things combined. I'm not saying it wasn't a good interview. I obviously yeah. really enjoyed the conversation, but he wasn't as peppy as I would have expected.
1: Right. So hey, Luke, can you just set the scene for us a bit for anyone tuning in from Mars? What are the things we need to know about David Seymour?
3: So David Seymour has been a leader of the ACT Party since. 2014, I believe, and he is has been the solitary ACT MP in Parliament, and particularly over the last three years, he has put an incredible amount of work in traveling up and down the country, and to be honest, speaking to a lot of groups that ha- that are often neglected by political leaders, and with the with the dive of the National Party in the polls, ACT is now on public polls at least coming up to near five percent. And it, and it looks like they could go even higher. So I think for ACT, this is really uh, from the glory days of the ACT in the 90s. They've been in the doldrums for a long time, and David Seymour has really built them up, and they are pretty quietly confident, I think, of, of a good result. So um, they, in my view, are really the interesting and real surprise story of this election will be, uh, will be how big a force ACT is in New Zealand's parliament uh, after October 17th. And Seymour himself got a bit of profile on national television early on in the term as well. That's right. Uh, so he was on Dancing with the Stars.
2: Following in the tradition of ACT leaders because Rodney Hyde did it as well. Of course he did. I've yeah. forgotten
3: entirely about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, but you blanked it from your mind
3: yeah, it's so yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't he say that he got he injured himself during that? Rodney Hyde or David no, Seymour? No, David Seymour, I've got a feeling.
2: Oh, maybe. Well, that's working. It doesn't look good for you. <laughs>
3: Uh, yeah, so he's with Dancing with the Stars, so he's, he's you know, like, often the, f- the feedback you hear about David Seymour is that a lot of people are like, oh, look, I don't really agree with him, but, you know, like, he's making sense, and he seems to be quite pragmatic, and he seems to be increasingly, I think, ACT had a real reputation as sort of being the nasty party, and I think um, David Seymour has really repositioned them as a sort of respectful and, at least in their mind, constructive voice within the parliament.
2: And quite, quite a courageous politician as well, I think, because the end-of-life choice, Bill was something that no one really wanted to take on for a really long period of time. He, as he talked about in the interviews you'll hear, he talks about being the only person to stand up and oppose the gun buyback scheme in the middle of, you know, a horrific national crisis. So I think a lot of people might, whereas sometimes they might not agree with him or a lot of time might not agree with them, respect that he is a true opposition force in Parliament.
4: Right. Well, we'd better let you get on with it. So take it away, Andrea and Luke.
2: Welcome and thank you for being here, David. How are you doing?
0: Oh, well, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I mean, uh, just when you think an election can't get any crazier, uh, we have an outbreak of COVID and, um, you know, probably even more than that, the impacts of it on people that are getting in touch with me, uh, you know, butchers down 80%. uh, You get a taxi driver, they say, I signed on at five and, uh, you know, haven't had a job, you're my first job at 9.30. Um, So, you know, of course, you feel that, because you feel responsible particularly to people you represent Uh, so I guess you know as a result of that pretty anxious about what happens next.
2: And you're um, a wee bit marooned from the people that you represent at the moment you're here in Wellington obviously and your electorate is in Epsom so how are you um, coping with that?
0: Well, uh, a, lot, a lot of time on the phone, just hearing what people are saying and, and where they're up to. And, and I just ask people the question, you know, a dozen, two dozen times a day, um, you know, what's the mood where you are? And that's usually the opportunity for people to open up and say what they're really feeling. Um, but obviously, um, you know, I made the decision to be here in Wellington because uh, I need to be able to move around and, and connect with media. It's very difficult uh, to campaign under house arrest. That's something that, you know, doesn't normally happen uh, in a democracy. It's more of a Caribbean style of politics. Uh, And those of us here in New Zealand want our politicians to be able to move about. So what's the mood where you are? Well, uh, I mean, it's it's what I said earlier, that uh, there are people who uh, have huge anxiety. So it's it's kids worried about exams because the stakes are higher this time. They're, they've caught up. I mean, I think the education system, the kids have done a great job, um, but now they're closer to exams. And of course, having this this not this lockdown uh, is an extra challenge for them. Uh, and then it's people in business and, and what they have in common with the earlier group is that they, of course, had got back on their feet and they were rebuilding their confidence and it's a little bit like you know, when you play a really tough game of rugby, and then the ref blows the whistle for an extra ten minutes each way, an extra time, and you think, "I was there," uh, and now it gets harder. So I think there's a lot of that sense that people, you know, really bottomed out last time, were recovering, uh, and now they're being hit again, which is, is quite uh, demoralising for, for a lot of people in business. In fairness, those are the people I hear from as an MP. Um, I know there's a lot of people who are less worried and don't contact their MP.
2: And we should say, obviously, that we're in the beehive today uh, on the day that the Prime Minister announced that she will be delaying the election till October 17th. So, I mean, how are you feeling about that? How does that impact your campaign?
0: Um, well, look, we're affected in the same way that just about every, you know, business school or household's affected. It's uh, We're just having to replan our priorities um, around this, this major disruptive event. So um, obviously, you know, we had a bus tour, we had a large number of public meetings and events uh, planned and, and our campaign team will be meeting later in the day to just map out what the new schedule looks like.
2: You seem a wee bit subdued, a bit down in the dumps today, David. <laughs> and I feel like you should be sort of celebrating a bit more because ACT is, is polling probably higher than it has in, in a decade.
0: Uh, yes, well, well, somebody told me uh, almost 20 years, but um, look, what that means is that we've just got a lot of responsibility and a lot of work to do. So, uh, you know, the polls just encourage us to, to work and campaign harder. Um, I think that, you know, having a, a bit more support means we get more MPs in and, and uh, may be able to play a role in helping solve a, a really big problem, which is uh, we don't want to let the virus in and be like Sweden, but I don't think we can afford to keep being the New Zealand in this game. Uh, you know, we, we can't afford to have these lockdowns every time there's an outbreak. There's, there's got to be a better way. Um, and I think one thing this election has done is allowed us to have the debate over what our public health strategy actually is. Um, you know, Elimination is unaffordable with the tools we currently have. So what tools can we have that make elimination affordable? And what sort of things are you thinking? Look, I, I think, first of all, we've got to adopt something the government has actually had uh, all along, but not really implemented. And that is a well-being approach, uh, because I think we need to look at the overall uh, situation here. I mean, well-being means uh, kids, and, and I mentioned their exams and their anxiety and mental health. Um, it means businesses. You know, I've heard stories about butchers crying on the footpath because they got all their fresh stock in and then had to freeze it or give it away. Uh, it also means that the economy, um, but it also means that you know we have to think about non-COVID healthcare. You know, two weeks of lockdown is about a billion dollars. That's just Auckland. Um, that is the same as the Pharmac budget for all pharmaceuticals for a year. So once you start taking a well-being approach, you start to say, look, we're spending more on lockdowns uh, than we would spend on. Anything else to save people's lives, and some people I know go out and say, "Oh, well, the answer to that is to be like Sweden and just stop, just let it in." I don't think that's acceptable either. Um, but the question is, you know, can we have a, a smarter intervention? So start with a well-being uh, approach, and then to answer your question, what does that look like? Well, first of all, I, I've said for quite a while now, if it was me, I'd put the ten smartest people left in the Ministry of Health on a plane um, to Taiwan, tell them not to come back till i have written down everything. The Taiwanese will help us because they want the global connections. Uh, What could we predict that we would learn from them? Number one, you've got to have a specialised epidemic control centre. Um, I don't think we've had that. We've put most of the responsibility onto the Ministry of Health who are really a policy shop. They're not an operational uh, shop. Uh, They're they're there to set policy and dispense money to the DHBs who do the operations, and badly. Uh, So you need to have someone who's multidisciplinary who can bring together the creation of apps and, and databases, uh, the distribution and production of, of PPE, um, the setting of clear rules of the game and the managing of the communication. Um, almost none of those are the right thing for the Ministry of Health to do. They just have the charismatic chief executive and and the right name. So, so number one is you'd, you'd do quite a big administrative reorganisation. And and that wouldn't just be all of government, as some people say, it would be all of New Zealand because there's a lot of people... Uh, tech-facing uh, who would like to help. You know, during the lockdown as a local MP, I was bombarded with people with a, a range of, you know, fairly plausible seeming uh, tech solution. Now, I was in no position uh, to evaluate those. I might be an electrical engineer from way back, but um, there was nowhere we could direct um, people uh, to, 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 to to really interface with the government. So, so that's the first thing then once you've got those tech solutions, once you've got that better coordination, I wouldn't bet on Sam Morgan's COVID card in particular, but something like that is is clearly what is needed so that uh, when someone tests positive, we know we can download all their contacts immediately, not spend 48 hours finding 80% of them and not rely on the whole city being sent home so that it can't spread any further while contact tracing catches up.
3: You mentioned that, David, that that the Ministry of Health is a policy shop. Clearly, some of the uh, some of the tests at the border have been some of the testing has simply fallen below par. Um, the government thought it was one hundred percent last week. Now it's clear that it's not. I mean, do you think that we're seeing that that disconnect between operational and policy being played out in front of us?
0: Yeah, and look, let's be honest, um, before any of this happened, uh, healthcare was in a pretty parlous state. I mean, people would say you got first world people in a third world system and all that. Um, and now these people are, are, are sort of tasked with handling a crisis and taking a multidisciplinary approach with, with skills they just don't have. And look, I, I'm in no way impugning the people at the Ministry of Health. I'm, I'm There's a lot of good people there. Um, but when it comes to doing databases and tech solutions, it's just not what they do. I mean, has anyone seen the state of patient records in this country? Um, so, you know, that they're not the right people to do many of the tasks required. And that's why you'd follow the Taiwanese example of having a multidisciplinary agency um, that specialises in handling epidemics, not in, um, you know, being a healthcare administrator.
3: Do you, think, do you think that the government overreacted with this latest lockdown?
0: No, I think the government did the right thing, um, locking down, given the quality of the other interventions they had. Um, so, you know, what they should have done is instead of doing a little dance, literally, um, and I know about dancing and there's a time and place to do it, um, <laughs> but you know, th- th- instead of doing a dance and then spending a hundred odd days comparing ourselves with the worst countries instead of the best and congratulating ourselves instead of critically re-evaluating our effort. Um, you know, they, they basically spent the whole time having a victory lap. And I think that is a, a major, major failing on the part of the government. And I'll just give you one example. Um, you, you know, we hear almost daily about how scary it is to be in Victoria. Has um, anyone else remembered that there are eight other states and territories of Australia, all of which are doing pretty well. And and this is our problem. We compare ourselves with the worst um, because to make ourselves feel better instead of working about how we improve.
2: I'm interested in you saying that because there is a lot of national pride uh, tied up in the elimination strategy for better or for worse. And you said that we need to be having a conversation about whether that's the right strategy or not. We're having that conversation now, but you go out into the the wider community and it's very difficult to have that strategy. Are you worried that people who have an alternative viewpoint are getting shot down?
0: Yeah, uh, look, I I think one of the, and this is bigger than COVID, um, if you ask, what is one of the biggest challenges that our society faces right now um, it's not you know health or education or welfare or how well, I manage our relationship with China I mean those are all big issues I think underlying all of that is the ability to have a civil disagreement and you go out onto I mean Twitter is probably a, an unfair example um, but, but just generally there's not a sense of you know I respect you as a person and I, I acknowledge you have different views and I think you're wrong and and here's why um, there's no objective knowledge. Uh, there's just you are X or Y person and therefore you are right or wrong. And, and I think that the lack of civil disagreement and critical thinking is a major, major problem. And I just look at some of these rumors that have spread. I mean, uh, this whole thing about the, um, you know, the woman sneaking into the managed isolation. So many people believed it with no proof. With no reason. And I just said, all these people sending it to me, I said, okay, what's more likely? Uh, you've got a story um, with sex and scandal that, that's gone viral on the internet. I mean, that, that happens every day. Um, or the entire apparatus of the New Zealand government and media are engaged in a vast cover-up. <laughs> I mean, which of those is more likely? And people still went with the sex scandal. So, you know, the, the, just the lack of critical thinking, it just drives you to tears.
2: What do you attribute that to? Is it, is it heightened fear?
0: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of that, but I I think it's also, frankly, the way that the government has managed the um, debates over uh, COVID-19. I mean the very first messaging was unite against COVID-19. You know, it wasn't have a state of open debate about how we face this thing. Now, I can understand why they might have chosen that approach, but also one of the consequences of that approach is that we now find it very difficult to question or have a different approach to, to what's going on. And I think that the result of that has been the last 100 days of complacency, which just cost us a billion bucks. ACT is the
3: party of personal liberty. Um, I think you used the term before house arrest. That essentially Auckland's under house arrest at the moment. I mean, how concerned are you that with this rolling, uh, you know, a potentially more rolling lockouts, that people just kind of get used to this as a as a part of everyday life?
0: Well, I think it's more like, that the government will get used to it. Yeah, I think if, if Act believes and if Act had to choose one thing and one thing only, we believe in, um, you know, we go back to Hayek. It's the rule of law, the idea that the rules are written down and I can read them and you can read them and they apply to us both equally. So what I'm really worried about is that over time. Uh, the, the government overreaches and the law becomes meaningless and then if you don't have the rule of law then you have arbitrary uh, you know coercion and decision making by individuals. I mean that's that's what we had for the start of the first lockdown basically. Ashley and Mike Bush got up and made the law each day and you, <laughs> just sort of took your chances out there. It was Wild West stuff for a few days and then finally they got some orders in. Um, I, I'm more worried that that the government overreach will erode the the, the faith in the law because as you already see on the beaches of Takapuna this weekend, People are just saying, bagger it.
2: Can we maybe set aside COVID for a, a while? Because I know that's hard to do in the, in the climate moment. the moment, but I, I, and I can't believe that you're reluctant, my last question to talk about ACT Party, but you're, you are doing really well at the moment by comparison to previous um, election polling. What do, you, what do you attribute to that? Why, why is ACT um, scoring some goals at the moment?
0: Well, I can only tell you what what people are saying to me, and it's it's a couple of things. Um, one is that, you know, we've been principled enough to stand against the whole of Parliament when we really felt that we needed to. Um, so, you know, it's pretty scary voting 119 to 1 uh, in the, the heat of a, uh, you know, a national crisis. Um, but I believed last April and I believe now that the response to the firearm, or, or the firearm law reforms in response to our nation's tragedy in Christchurch, um, we, we we just totally inadequate. We haven't plugged the loopholes that allowed the guy to get away with it, but we have managed to alienate a whole lot of people who actually wanted to be allies in plugging those loopholes. So, you know, we've stood on principle and it's mattered on, on the firearms laws, on free speech, um, and on a bunch of other things that maybe are a bit arcane. But can you believe the National Party signed up for the Commerce Commission to go around harassing whole industries at will? I mean, that, that stuff's just completely nuts. And of course, I'm talking about the market studies introduced to the... Commerce Act. Um, so, you know, we've stood on principle alone on that and a bunch of issues. Um, we've also, conversely, been uh, completely constructive on on important issues so I would look at this term of parliament and say what are the really constructive progressive things that have happened well most of the government's agenda frankly has, has been pretty disastrous I mean you know the parliamentary commissioner for the environment says banning oil and gas means we burn more Indonesian coal well that's a known goal um, you know Kiwi build well, we, it's almost unfair for opposition MPs to bring that up these days um, you, you know like, like it's very difficult to look at successes end of life choice on the other hand um well, well, that was was actually a success of this parliament, uh, assuming that, that people are going to keep supporting it through the referendum, as, as all the polling indicates. Uh, you know, we actually, one person, did something constructive to make New Zealand a better place for the most vulnerable people in our society, which for me is those suffering badly at the end of their lives. So, um, look, it's that. You know, principled enough to stand apart, constructive enough to work with everyone. And through the COVID period, you know, our job is to offer constructive criticism where necessary and positive suggestions where possible, while asking the questions that that people sitting at home want to be asked.
2: On the end of life choice bill, take us right back to the beginning. Why, personally, why did you get involved? Because it was, it was a courageous thing to pursue, and when, when politicians sometimes shy away from social taboos.
0: Well, I don't have any dog in this fight. Some people think that I did it because my mum died when I was relatively young, and sadly she did, but she died in a hospice with good palliative care. And it's never been about saying palliative care is inadequate. Palliative care is fabulous. But you can believe in it and also be honest about the fact it does not work perfectly for everyone. Um, so that's the first thing. The, the, the second thing I'd say um, is that, it, you know, what is a politician's job? It's ultimately to make people's lives better. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, one of the most important things we could do at this time is say, look, those, those people who suffer badly, you know, we shouldn't impose our morality on them and, and make them keep suffering for no need. The Supreme Court of Canada said that was a cruel choice that people are forced into. Um, you know, we believe, as I said, in the rule of law, and the rule of law should allow people to make a, a highly safeguarded choice. Um, so that they can choose how they go and when they go uh, uh, suffering at the end of their life. So it really is about, you know, making better pu- public policy, uh, enhancing the, the, or protecting the rule of law, and, and making our society more compassionate. I mean, I'm proud to live in a country that was first in the world uh, where men and women could vote equally. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud that our country has generally been a compassionate place, and this is another example of that.
3: Um, I'll just hew back to... Um... Economics, which is of course the, uh, I guess the wellspring of the ACT Party. Um, What what would be the key if if you guys were put into government after the election? What would be the key three economic levers that you would pull to try and help New Zealand recover from this pandemic?
0: Well, first of all, we've got to get on top of our fiscal situation and our alternative budget. We're only party that's actually put out a fully-costed alternative budget this year uh, shows how we could reduce expenditure by $7 billion uh, without touching health care or education, um, and I think that is something that's, that's absolutely got to happen because the alternative is we get to the end of this decade... Uh, with $200 of public debt. And if anyone thinks that these interest rates are going to stay where they are forever, uh, I hope they're right and I wish them luck, but I think they're dreaming. So we've got to get on top of the the quality of expenditure. And I just say to people, you know, you think we can't reduce expenditure? Why do we borrow a billion dollars a year now, the taxpayer's got to pay back uh, to subsidise people's KiwiSaver. If someone said, uh, you know, I'm asking for some financial advice, should I borrow, um, you know, a billion dollars and invest it in the share market and see how I go, you'd say that's nuts. Uh, But that's what the New Zealand government's doing. So number one is you get rid of all the poor quality spending and and we've identified seven billion. Um, Number two is... we've got to improve the quality of regulation. So we are constantly uh, beset by poor quality regulation. The worst of it, is land use regulation. Um, and you look at the Auckland Council can't even get consent to bring water into Auckland when it's pouring into the Tasman Sea at 416 cubic metres a second. I looked it up. Um, you, you know, it took them eight years to get halfway up the queue to get that consent. That's life under the Resource Management Act. And, you know, the real impact of that for a whole generation is that since the RMA was passed, the price of a section in Auckland's gone up 900% the same time, the poorest quintile, the poorest 20% of households, um, they've gone from spending a quarter of their income on housing to half their income on housing. That's why we've got no social mobility. That's why we've got people in cars and garages. Uh, we've got to change these things, and, and it starts with the quality of regulation, particularly the RMA. But let me just give you two more. Um, you know, I get students, Masters and PhD students, who say, we could make cows eat rye grass so they belch less methane, a major issue for New Zealand. But as soon as we take our genetic technology outside the lab, we've got to move to California. It's nuts. We're openly hostile to people who want to do innovative stuff in New Zealand. Um, another one, Harmony, fantastic business, fintech, great business plan, peer-to-peer lending, basically found they can't do peer-to-peer lending um, in New Zealand so they've pivoted their business to being a retailer of wholesale finance totally insane that they should have their business plan destroyed not because it wasn't a good plan not because they didn't have customers but because the government is just openly hostile to tech innovation so regulatory quality huge ex-regulatory constitution is a big part of that and there's two if you really want three I can keep going well just
3: just just go back to two things um firstly, you said you find savings outside of health and education mm. surely, you don't think every dollar in health and education can be well spent why are you Why are you leaving those particular ones out
0: well. You know, I think in both cases you've got massive uh, upward pressure. First of all, I think teachers are underpaid. So if you did make any savings or health in, in health and education, you'd want to pay teachers more. I frankly don't think we're paying enough to get the right people in front of the classroom. Um, and the other problem is that we insist on paying, um, you, you know, a, a PE teacher uh, the same as a physics teacher. And Now, if you can explain, um, you know, Newtonian mechanics. Annexed to a classroom of sweaty six formers on a February afternoon you have serious marketable skills no disrespect to PE teachers but you know we got no science teachers in this country don't pay them enough anyway so that's why you wouldn't cut education are you suggesting performance pay then for teachers look I, I wouldn't call it performance pay I would just call it pay like any other profession um, you, you know you guys that work at stuff and do a great job you'll have individual contracts um, we don't need a magic league table or formula to decide how much you pay, you just have, an, uh, you know, an arrangement with your employer on what you get paid. Same in a law firm, same in an accounting firm, same in an architecture firm. All the professions that teachers want to prepare themselves with, uh, they won't have the same pay regime as them. And I think we need to change that. Um, and healthcare is the same. I mean, frankly, you know, we need to spend more on pharmaceuticals. You know, we're becoming third world in that regard. So not only would we not cut health and education. We'd like to spend more on health and education. Um, but you can't do that while you insist, for instance, on having a fees-free uh, year for 18-year-olds that have just graduated from a eight, nine or ten state school. I mean, th- th- those aren't the people in need of help in this country. And yet that's the priority for the Labour Party, founded in Blackpool, to help the working man.
3: On people in need in this country, you you did you. Spoke there about housing and the fact that it's gone up 900. It's now half of um, half of Auckland's uh, Aucklanders' income or household income. What would that? What would act, And it's it's a perennial political issue now in New Zealand: housing unaffordability.
0: What are the? What would? the eight Party be pushing for to make houses more affordable? So three very simple things. One, uh, you need to do over the RMA um, and the Productivity Commission's Better Urban Planning report shows how you could change urban planning um, in, the, in the city context. We can have a separate discussion about the rural context. Um, but in the city context, you've got uh, a new resource management law that is fundamentally based on the city providing the infrastructure plans, uh, doing the zoning and letting people make private arrangements. So, you know, you can protect yourself against someone building six stories up against your boundary, which I often have uh, difficulty with as a local MP. Um, but also you don't have these plans and commands from on high that stop people developing their property. So... That's number one, is resource management. Number two, no point freeing up land legally if you can't get to it. So we would give half the sale price of new dwellings um, to the council that issued the consent. In the context of Auckland, last time I did the calcs, that's about half a billion a year, would actually fill in their transport deficit. So, um, you, you know, we we and it changes their incentives because suddenly if you're a council and you say yes to a resource consent, you get a lot of money. Um, and finally... Um, building consents, it's just insane that we let councils uh, decide if you've built your building properly. They have no expertise on this. They should have been fired from the role after leaky buildings. I mean, that was enough of a screw-up, you would have thought. So here's here's the question. If you get on a Boeing... Uh, and, and they, they announced that the, the, the quality assurance on the build was done by the Evergreen County Council uh, in Washington where they build Boeings, you'd get off. You know. And the point is Boeing and every other aircraft manufacturer and many building uh, builders, constructors, um, have private quality assurance. So we would say, look, you've got to be insured when you sell a building. Um, how you do that's up to you. And we'd have a market of private QA instead of councils getting involved, pushing up the costs and buggering everything up.
2: So, you've previously said that you would like to sit on the crossbenches. Is that still your position? Would you not want a ministerial portfolio? Do you not want to be in a confidence and supply? How, how do you see that? And, and do you have any bottom lines when you go to ne- negotiate? Yeah, so, Should you get the chance?
0: So so, I mean, I've turned down the baubles of office before. And, you know, John Key asked me to be a minister. I turned it down to get the End of Life Choice Act done because ministers can't have private members' bills. And I'm very prepared to do that again. And I actually think ACT can achieve more uh, if we don't take the baubles because as soon as you become a minister, you got the limo, you got the staff, you got the salary, um, you got the title. But let's face it, you're an employee of the prime minister who is the leader of a competing political party. So, you know, this never ends well and that's why everyone that's gone into that arrangement has died politically. Uh, I think you've got more leverage if you maintain your independence and you don't take all of those baubles. Uh, then the question is, well, what do we negotiate? Well, um, you know, we've got to get honest about the fiscal track you know, our starting position is balance the budget by 2023-24. The Nats want to, be, who knows, but, but you know, if we've met them halfway, then that would be a massive saving for New Zealand taxpayers. Um, the regulatory stuff, we've got to get that regulatory constitution in there at the moment. People are making laws all the time without even asking what problem they're trying to solve. It's a disaster, and the regulatory constitution actually put some safeguards for the regulated, that politicians can't make laws without publishing a proper problem definition, otherwise the courts can strike down the law and that's where we need to start going. Um, And then when it comes to some of our other issues, you know, we're not prepared to raise taxes, we're not prepared to have restrictions on freedom of speech and we certainly believe that when the Royal Commission reports back on our nation's tragedy in Christchurch, it's going to show none of the problems have been solved, Uh, none of the, the, the laws of introduced have helped uh, and we're going to have to start again and actually solve the problems and be safe because that is a major policy disaster and in my view it will lead to another tragedy because at the moment there's just no trust out there and there's no real oversight in the firearm space.
2: But are those red lines or would you just take whatever's handed to you?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well put it this way um Presumably our coalition partners, the National Party, actually will have some ambition too. Um, like they'll probably want to pass budgets and they'll probably have their own legislative agenda. Um, so it's kind of give and take. I mean, you could have a Mexican stand-up for three years and get nothing done. I suspect that when you look at those ideas we've presented, um, they're all things they should be doing anyway. And I think uh, in return for you know, continuing support, they'll do them.
2: So you would give that support? It wouldn't. It wouldn't necessarily be... A cross benches arrangement. You would go into coalition, or you would do confidence and supply. You just wouldn't take a
0: portfolio. Or I'd see, I'd see us giving confidence um, and maybe supply, but it'd be a very arms length relationship. Uh, and it'd be based on achieving a policy agenda because um, I think what's missing from New Zealand governments, the moment we got great marketing, arguably John Key was the same, um, but I look at the policy settings that Helen Clark left behind and really nothing's changed and we need to do better on regulation, better on housing, better on education, um, you know, and, and get on top of this poor quality spending. Uh, otherwise, we're just going to be slowly going backwards in productivity. We'll get poor. Um, we know we have fewer drugs and the drift will happen and people, New Zealand will be a place not that people come to but people leave and I don't want to see that for my country
2: people see you as a kind of somewhat of a lonely figure in parliament because you have until now been a caucus of one who who are your buddies who do you get on with who who do you have a drink with when house is risen
0: Oh look! I mean, every every other person in Parliament, I ran because I thought they shouldn't be there. So, um, (laughs) so I didn't come to Parliament to make friends. I've got some great uh, personal friends, um, most of whom go back at least twenty years to high school, and um, those are the people that keep me grounded. I certainly didn't come down here to make friends, and I feel sorry for anyone that did.
3: (laughs) What do you um, tell us a bit about the? Tell us a bit about your. your list your potential front bench that, uh, that yeah. might be brought in if ACT gets a, you know 5-6-7%
0: result yeah, yeah well look I'm I'm really proud of the the quality of people standing for ACT so if you look at Brooke so she's our deputy um, and some people say oh she's 27 I asked Richard Preble about this and he said that's a great age to enter parliament because um, that was his uh, age at, at the time and um, I think that she's a real star I, the reason I think that is because I watched her operate on end of life choice so As you say, I have a lot of buddies in Parliament Um, Needed someone to get that job done while I managed other things. Um, Took Brooke out of the private sector and she basically just came in and did the job. And in doing so, uh, she managed a a group of people um, uh, much, much better than I could have because most of them actually like her, unlike me. Um, And uh, also managed the technical aspects. So if you look at what you really need in a politician, relationships and policy, um, you know, there's not many people with more potential than Brooke Van Velden. Then you look at Nicole McKee. Um, You know, uh, the only thing I like about Nicole is she just destroys people's stereotypes. So you hear these people who say, she's the gun lobby. I mean, come on. Uh, She also um, wears a Coral White. So, you know, put that in your woke stereotyping hat um, and smoke it. But, um, you know, Nicole was the spokesperson for the Coalition of Licensed Firearm Owners at a time when our country could have gone to the most terribly divisive rhetoric. And her job as the spokesperson uh, was to seriously dial it down and have a much more rational conversation than a lot of people wanted to have on both sides. And I think that speaks volumes of Nicole. You know, she's a mother of four. She's, uh, you know, run her own business, actually training people in firearms safety. Um, of course, she, she, you know, she's she got her uh, Māori tanga and... Um, I think she's a multidimensional uh, communicator uh, person and, and she'll be a great MP and you'll actually find that she'll be able to use those skills in a lot more areas than the ones you've seen her so far. Um, and just very quickly, Chris Bailey, 14 years as a youth aid police officer, 14 years as a secondary school teacher for special needs kids. Um and uh, he employs 30 people with his own money, running a pub called The Honest Lawyer in Nelson. Um, and uh, he's also plays trumpet or sax or something in a, in a jazz band. So I'm not very good at jazz, but he sounds pretty good. Um, and then Simon Court, uh, you know, is a, a reformed and, um, how shall we say, uh, rehabilitated green voter and, uh, and hippie um, who, after 25 years as a civil engineer, says, look, you know, the, the basic green approach doesn't work. You can't just make a rule to solve every problem. Sometimes you've got to innovate out of your problems. And what's more, often it's the regulations that stop the innovations. So, um, you know, I think people for a long time have said, how do you get a blue-green voice? Because, you know, everyone likes money, everyone likes the environment. Why don't I have a party that does both? And the reason it hasn't worked with any of these other startup up try-hard things is they're not authentic. Well, we've got a guy who's on the right and worked in the environmental sector for 25 years, and and he's giving practical, real solutions.
2: So are you... Are you trying to bust this? The stereotype of ACT has been rich old white guy uh, who doesn't like climate change. Did you set about to change that and to shake up the list and present a different face of ACT?
0: No, I think um, it's happened a lot more organically than that. So... um, You know, there's a lot less orchestration than people think. I mean, basically, there's been a pretty organic process where the people that um, got selected really did persuade the eight or nine voting board members that that they were the best. And, you know, I can tell you, having been in the board meeting, which is secret, I mean, there was no way that Brooke was going to lose the number two slot. She just networked too well. Um, And I think that probably, you know, put Nicole in a a pretty good uh, position because she had some obvious things to, to offer. Um, you know, she's probably our most recognised candidate other than me. Um, and then if you look at Chris and Simon, it's it's much much the same scenario. So, no, I think we're in a good space um, where people have got their own merit. Similarly, I just say to people, if they have a chance to go online, I'm sure you can find uh, Karen Shure's speech to our conference where... I mean, it's the bravest political speech I've ever seen. She actually told the story of growing up as a SIFs kid and said, "You guys don't know what this is like. This is why we have to change it." No one's being that honest about um, Oranga Tamariki. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, change your future, party vote Act.
2: <laughs> nice work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See you later. <laughs>
1: That's the Tick, Tick podcast for Thursday the 20th of August. I'm Adam Dudding, here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to David
4: Seymour, Andrew Vance, Jack Price, Luke Malpass, Catherine George, Patrick and John Harderfeld and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back on Saturday. Mate wa.